Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, A Song of Ice and Fire, Episode 63, John 8 and 9, in A Storm of Swords. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You probably know me from the internet as at Lies and Arbor, or on my blog, liesandarborgold.com. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. You might know me as Glass Table Girl over on Reddit or the Maester Monthly Podcast. Maybe you know me as Arithmetric over on Twitter. Maybe not. But... You should. No, you shouldn't. I... <laughs> what did I... I retweeted today this great tweet of a dog swooshing its ears and someone had added helicopter sounds to it. And I think that was the highlight of my day. But... It's okay. Yesterday it was that TikTok cat video that I sent you that I was like, this is me now. Oh, that one was amazing. And the cat flips. And the flipping part, when the cat like had the hands and the fl- and it was it was good. If you haven't seen it, look it up. I'm not going to tell you how. Just I rewatched it. it so many um, times just to understand what was happening in regards to that flip. It was really important to me. And... Mr. Simmons. I briefly considered getting a TikTok, and then I was like, I don't know if I'm young enough for a TikTok account. You're far too old I for truly a TikTok am. account. It's illegal for us to get TikTok <laughs> Until accounts. Until the police show up at your door. Someday I'll make an actual like law book of our laws. That's one of them. <laughs> well, laws uh, in Arbor Gold. Yeah. Laws in Arbor Gold. Is that my lawyer book? I think it should be. Uh, you guys, we have decided that it is time to tell you what Patreon episode we are choosing to do this month. Because we have decided what Patreon episode we are doing this month. (laughs) I think we are feeling bereft after all of the Dance of the Dragons, you know? It was very, uh, it was a a burning subject, no pun intended. It, uh, it left us going, what now? What now? But we figured it out, Eliana, what is it? Tell me. So we went to our Patreon and we asked people, what would you like to hear us do an episode about? And a couple people gave some really great suggestions and some of the other ones are coming yeah. down the pipeline, but what was that? Did you say the Sansa Stark one? <laughs> we did an entire like series already. And, and I don't understand what the problem and, is. Um, that that <laughs> one was tempting. There was another one that we are interested in, but I'm going to hold that in my pocket for now for us to announce for maybe next month. Is it about the horses? No, someone did a Reddit post about that and I was and I don't know what I would say about the horses other than like go look at this Reddit post that explains everything cuz turns out I don't actually know that much. So of course, this one can't be the horse one. It can't be about Sansa's queen in the north which you said some of these are coming down the pipeline so I think <laughs> this could be it. But is it mentors? Are we doing mentors? We are doing mentors in mentorship. Ah! How it manifests throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. We'll be analyzing it from the lens of a couple of different characters, both young and old. And we thought it dovetailed nicely together with us doing all these John chapters right now. Uh, and we're going to see a lot of things about mentorship in this chapter and the one after as well of the men that are uh, shaping him. The guys that are shaping him over at uh, Castillo Negro. And along with our Patreon episode, we also have something else coming out before the end of this month. 
our His Dark Materials episode? Yes. I Do you like how excited I'm getting? These are all happening? I am very excited that you're excited. Yes, these are all happening because we are great at planning. So His Dark Materials episode two will be out at the end of the month. We are going to be covering chapters four through six in Northern Lights, the Golden Compass, whatever you want to call it. That is going to be from part one. Yes, it is still going to be from the part one of the first book. But we are, you know, maybe we'll do these more than once a month is what we're thinking. Maybe. We're like yeah. Yeah. super into the series right now. Um, I'm going to I'm going to be really honest with you guys we're doing this with me not reading them before now and that statement is a true statement i have not read them before now however at the time of this recording i may or may not almost be done with the subtle knife which is the second book and it is so good i can't put it down and someone interrupted me on the bus and i was really mad so you guys read these books they're really good yeah it's a it's a very different style than george obviously it's not so Levicious when it comes to like the food you don't get pages of that you don't get you know like her dress billowed in the wind because of the silk which happened to be of this pedigree blah blah, blah. but you do get some of that you get it in spurts and you also get some of this just really i don't know really sharp writing really deep there's stuff that's happening that i am smacking myself right now because i'm like oh my god it was right there and i just ignored it i drove right by it so i'm yeah, I'm really ha- I'm really excited for the third one. I I got to finish this like after this. I'm so excited <laughs> to hear what Chloe's going to think of all these things especially as we revisit it. Now that especially once she gets to the end of the book. So uh, this is a journey we are all on together and it seems like a lot of people are starting to crack into these books for the first time because the show is coming out. It seems that a lot of people in who might be some of our UK listeners have read these books because they were very popular there. I mean, they were very popular here in the U.S., but maybe there was something that uh, really connected with people, especially about Oxford. My understanding is that Mm. my friend was talking about how she visited Oxford because she loved the His Dark Materials book so much from the U.S., right? And she was like, it's exactly the way it's described, in the books so she's like that's what it looks like and so it's really it's really interesting because a lot of people also have these really deep connections with the story from from their formative years of growing up and of course like any years can be your formative years of their formative experiences obviously a song of ice and fire has been formative for us in a way oh yeah and, you know, it's a quick read. It's not a, I'm not saying that it's simple. I'm not saying it's an easy read, once, especially once you're into the second book. There's just a lot that's making me stop and actually turn the page back and go, hold on, let me read this again. Like, what, what did I just read? Is that gonna, what, what's gonna happen there? Um, whereas, like, the first couple times I read A Song of Ice and Fire, it was just barrel through because I, I was just eating it, mm-hmm. you know, I was hungry. And maybe that's just how I've changed as a reader, I guess, because of A Song of Ice and Fire, because of how George writes. But with His Dark Materials, it's it's not a long read. It only took me a couple days to finish the first book if I just sat there and read for a few hours each day for, like, one to three days. It really didn't take me long. Um, now I'm ready to go back and reread it. And it, it, it's an easier read than, you know, dedicating yourself to A Song of Ice and Fire, 
Because once you dedicate yourself to a song of ice and fire, as you know, you start a podcast. Yeah. So, and I think you're right that reading a song of ice and fire has changed me in that way as a reader. Because when I was rereading the Golden Compass, because it's my first time in what sixteen years rereading it, uh, fifteen years, and I would go back and like flip back when mm-hmm. I was coming across things. And I actually was discussing this with the same friend who went to Oxford on a visit and. When I was reading the Broken Earth trilogy by N.K. Jemisin, there were things that would make me pause and I was reading it for the first time and I would double all the way back to things like at the beginning or whatever because it's like, that's, wait, what is this? This is interesting and like checking things and I become, I think, uh, I have always been kind of an engaged reader, but even more so now. Yeah. Changed the way I read it, for sure. Speaking of engaged readers, we have... And if any of you are going to be at Dragon Con Labor Day weekend, uh, me, Chloe, Liza and Arbergold will be there hanging around. So reach out, hit us up on Twitter or shoot us an email and we can chat before and maybe we can meet up at. Uh, there's a huge Game of Thrones photo shoot on the Saturday. This is Dragon Con in Atlanta. And it's just fun. It's fun. Lots of Game of Thronesy stuff. I'll be on a handful of panels. Yeah, it'll be a good time. So say hi if you see me. Yes. And speaking of saying hi, we have some emails and tweets of note this week. Actually, they're both emails, not tweets. But we have some emails. One comes from our friend Styles of the Veil. Hi, girls. As you've been going through John's chapters, it has gotten me thinking about ghosts. I just finished rereading The Dunkin' Egg, where they discuss how bastards typically invert their arms. The Stark Sigil, as we all know is a gray wolf on a snowy white field. As such, all of the direwolves are gray with the exception of Ghost and Shaggy Dog, who probably belong to the arguably oldest and the youngest of the Starks. Ghost is in fact the inverse, which fits with John being the bastard of Winterfell, along with looking like a weirwood and everything else. I was curious if you thought this was a coincidence or a tactical move on George's part. Also, parts of Winterfell have described as oak and iron a couple of times it made me think of dunk's favorite battle quote oak and iron guard me well or else i am doomed to hell i thought it was a fitting connection since winterfell is thought to be a haven for the starks and of course hot pie keeps calling it winter hell nice i love that really good really good catch uh with that whole sigil bit as far as I know, a lot of times in heraldry, inverted colors or reversed signs usually indicate that the person is not of the original house. So if you think of John with his coloring of his direwolf as kind of that inverse of the Stark sigil with the red and with white, kind of a cool like bastard look to it, right? Very interesting that it's it would be like the gray wolf on the snowy white field, but flipped with the white wolf on the gray field with red eyes possibly imagine that in your brain do you see it i see it do you see it eliana yeah that could be his banner but i don't know i wonder if we'll get a banner for him regarding the duncan egg stuff the oak and iron guard me well or else i am or else i'm damned and doomed to hell last week we discussed how george wrote chronologically the duncan egg books versus a dance with dragons and a feast for crows and a storm of swords uh where he started where he went and it's interesting, you have that great catch of that oak and iron a lot in these John chapters at Castle Black, and I'm excited to see when we get to Winterfell as well, because I don't really think about it, so the next couple chapters and POVs that we end up getting there in, I would love to think about the oak and iron, come back to this for sure. 
And if you didn't hear, George did confirm his writing schedule currently, which is first and foremost, of course, The Wind's a Winner, and then Duncan Egg 4, which could be She-Wolves, could not be, we'll see, and then A Dream of Spring, and then Duncan Egg 5, and then Fire and Blood 2, so it makes me wonder with that in mind if he's going to be writing some of those alongside each other and sharing some of the same central themes like he's been doing in A Feast for Crows, A Storm of Swords, Dance of Dragons, yada yada. And it makes me think what a Fire and Blood 2 we'll see that will tie in with the current, like Aegon the Fourth, Aegon the Fifth, Aegon the Sixth, Summer Hall, this, that, blah, 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 Blackfire, this, parades, you know, Burning King's Landing. <laughs> I'm sure George is excited to explore Aegon the Fourth. I remember going through some So Speak Martins, I forgot which ones they were, and he was talking about some future stories or novellas that he would like to write and he had like toyed around this was this was long long ago like almost 20 years ago he toyed around with wanting to do one around Aegon the fourth and I was like interesting uh he had toyed around with doing like a first person perspective of Aegon the fourth and said that this was something that he'd wanted obviously this has not come to fruition but you know this is i guess his chance in fire and blood too i imagine it's bizarre in there i can't wait for fire and blood too i know it sounds crazy but i really enjoyed fire and blood i like the depth we got out of the dance obviously stares at camera uh i want to know what happens to egg on the third yeah me too i do a lot of people are like i want to know what happens to egg to egg egg five and i'm like why you know what happens to him he decides to try to somehow birth dragons or some shit because of prophecy and he burns down everything that's literally what happens and rhaegar is born and it all follows prophecy yada yada yada. like that that's what kills me people are like i want to know what happened and i was like there you go that's all you need and obviously there'll be nice nuances but i'm excited about things like egg three i want like those answers but interestingly enough Aegon the fourth i did a uh it was like a it was a nerdy comedy TED Talk thing a long time ago, a few years ago, whatever. I did it, and it was supposed to be, like, funny. No one else laughed, but, man, it was a good, no comprehensive learning experience. <laughs> no one liked it except me. I was like, this guy's awful. <laughs> no one cared. It was just, it was, like, a small indie, like, building that did comedy, you know, rented out, like, a black box or some crap. <laughs> And I chose to do a slideshow, a PowerPoint, a Google PowerPoint. Wow. Uh, whatever. Slides. Yeah. Google Slides. Interesting. Yeah, I did a Google Slides, Aegon the Fourth, and his mistress's presentation. So that was a hard seven minutes. Let me just tell you. <laughs> One for every face of the seven gods. <laughs> <gasps> so we got an email from our friend Travis, and he said that he stumbled recently on our podcast, and he loves it, and he'd like to hear his our thoughts on this idea he had about the Pale Mare being Lyanna Stark. In Prophecy, the Pale Mare is female. First the Pale Mare, and after her. Plus all the warnings in the prophecy referred to people. When Jon goes down in the crypts, I think with her tomb being down there, when the Kings of Winter rise, he'll be able to talk to her ghost with her horse symbolism and her being dead. This is where I think she's the Pale Mare. And find out he's the rightful heir. Ergo, Danny needs to be aware, the Pale Mare, a.k.a. Liana's ghost. That's really interesting. I. What's fun about George's prophecies is that a lot of them are so ambiguous and they 
can mean different things, and it's open to interpretation and misinterpretation from readers and characters alike. Or maybe not even, like, misinterpretation. It's just, like, several of them hold so many meanings, you know? Yeah, and it's an interesting catch, too, thinking that they're a person. And I could see that maybe it's just more of a metaphorical symbolic in John is the pale mare and the fact that he is Liana's son and his claim threatens Danny. However, it did remind me of that one show quote that Cersei and Robert have going back and forth in A Game of Thrones in season one when she says, what could Lyanna Stark's ghost have done to us that we haven't done a hundred or a thousand times or something? And it makes me think of Jon Snow. Jon Snow is what Lyanna Stark's ghost can do. Uh, Lyanna Stark's ghost directly transcends to Jon Snow, the supposed heir possibly to the throne. Yeah, I mean... That's one more thing that Liana's ghost can do. Take the throne from them. <laughs> that and like also like accidentally steal all the mans. Yep. But she's already Leanna done Stark, that. Stark, age 15. Uh, uh, uh. Oh, God. Yeah, it's Oh, gross. God. Everyone needs to chill. <laughs> Everyone needs to let her go. She's a fucking teenager. <sighs> God. Anyway. But let's talk about that pale mare and Liana's ghost in John. Yeah, let's go to John. Let's talk about John. So the battle of the wall continues, but before that, we got a lightning round. Yes, in Brand 4, Samwell Tarly brings Prince Brandon and his party through the Black Gate. Mm-hmm. Daenerys 5, Arston Whitebeard reveals that he has been deceiving Daenerys while revealing <gasps> his true identity. It's Cerberus in the bold. Who saw this coming? Tyrion 7. When your child bride doesn't like you because your family horrifically murdered her family and you have to send your paid girlfriend away, life is pretty hard. Sansa 4. Sansa learns of the Red Wedding and must attend Joffrey's pre-wedding gift bonanza. (laughs) Right. Tyrion 8. Tyrion attends his nephew's wedding. It's uneventful. Nothing happened. <laughs> and that's why in Sansa 5, Sansa has to leave. So boring. It was just such a boring party. She flees her ex's wedding early due to like his motherfucking death. And instead of popping bottles, she's actually pretty emotionally conflicted. But thankfully, she's got a savior over here. It's a little thinker. Why'd you just make that face? You like were like flirting with me over the camera after you said Littlefinger. I want to. I know. I just wanted to make a lot of conflicted feelings in you. You were like nodding your head and grinning, like. Uh, uh, I just wanted to make it. Daddy, I just wanted to make it as gross as possible for you. Jamie Seven. Jamie returns to King's Landing, missing his hand and now a son. Nothing happened at that wedding. Davos 6. Davos reminds Stannis that a real king must protect his people or he is no king at all. John 8. You thought we were done with the battle? No way! The scattering of rangers and thens that John and company defeated last episode are nothing compared to what comes their way. Mammoths, giants, and of course, Mance Raider await us ahead. Oh, and some more death. Yay, the best. He dreamt he was back in Winterfell, limping past the stone kings on their thrones. Their grey granite eyes turned to follow him as he passed, and their grey granite fingers tightened on the hilts of the rusted swords upon their laps. 
You are no Stark. He could hear them mutter in heavy granite voices. There is no place for you here. Go away. He walked deeper into the darkness. Father, he called. Bron, Rickon. No one answered. A chill wind was blowing up, was blowing on his neck. Uncle, he called. Uncle Benjamin, father, please, father, help me. Up above, he heard drums. They are feasting in the great hall, but I am not welcome there. I'm no stock, and this is not my place. His crutch slipped and he fell to his knees. The crypts were growing darker. A light has gone out somewhere. Egret, he whispered. Forgive me, please. But it was only a direwolf, gray and ghastly, spotted with blood, his golden eyes shining sadly through the dark. Oh boy. That's a way to open a chapter. That is a fucking showstopper. That's some heavy shit. It's a, it's a lot. That's some guilt, some some abandonment issues, some guilt, some some bastard issues. A lot of things. You know what it reminds me of, though. This hmm. this dream of John's, where he's walking in the darkness and it keeps getting cold, colder, and he's trying to find someone, and he keeps going down this hall to whatever's at the end of it, and can't find it. It reminds me of Danny's dream in. A Game of Thrones, I think it is, and she's trying to find... It's right before the dragons are born, and her running down the hall and the cold chasing her behind her. Oh, yes. And I lo- I like that. I was just going to say, does it remind you of the Danny dream? Oh, they have a lot of similar yeah. thematic like things going back and forth with that dream. Yeah. Any other dreams, really. Hell, even her House of the Undying mm-hmm. visions really tie in with his dreams a lot, especially like... That dream, too, when she's like, faster, faster, and the flames always coming for her. That's what's interesting is, like, everywhere she goes, it's darkness and flames and this, and I don't know. And he has this, like, dream of the crypts constantly, and it's cold, and I don't know. I like it. I like it a lot. It's really good work. It's just so good. And, like, also, he he's thinking of it, and obviously he's thinking of Egret, and he's worried about Ghost because Ghost hasn't shown up. And he actually had gone and burned Egret himself between battle as she would have wanted, but he's worried that Ghost might be dead. And then he thinks about the wolf in his dream and how it was gray. And he's like, I wonder if Bran's wolf is dead because of the Thens. Like, I wonder if Summer and Bran were murdered by Thens. But we know Bran's alive. And obviously Summer's with him right this moment. So this is really Rob's wolf, Grey Wind, right? I think it is. That's what I was thinking too, because the coloring is similar. I think it's just that eyes. Rob's is a little darker. So, yeah. but like, I don't know, apparently it's dark here, so maybe he can't really tell. It has to be Rob. It has to be, because this is literally around when. So the horn blows, and immediately John's like, the horn of winter? And then he's like, oh no, it's probably just Mance Raider. So he like gets up, and is this passage technically about alarm clocks? Because it blew twice, and he was like, he knew he had to get up, but he didn't want to. And that was me this morning. I snoozed my alarm from like 5.30 until 6, almost. Like, I was like, oh, shit. Do you not usually so, do same, that? same, John. I do, but like... You're so good. My significant other is out of town, so mm-hmm. usually I can make myself get up earlier if I know that they are awake. I'm like, oh, they're awake. I should be awake. But now it's like, I have no reason to get up. So I could just sleep forever luxuriously if I wanted. But I can't. I can't. And John couldn't hear either. He could not. He could not. We will fight a battle, and then we'll rest. Alive or dead, we'll rest. 
That was very like Game of Thrones show though. Like they they have that uh I fought I died now I rest that he says in season six or five I don't know whatever oh six six because he died in five whatever continuity whatever what is it what is it even it's just like I blocked that out so <laughs> he looks for his friends but it's dark and they're nowhere to be seen probably because it's dark so he then he moves along he prepares to ride the wind shop and it actually takes ten men at a time. Going up with him are Satin, Mully, Spear Boot, Kegs, Big Blonde Harith with his buck teeth. They call him Horse. It's important for everyone to know. <laughs> yes. Zay, the sex worker who wanted to stay. And three orphan boys that Donald Noy had kept. Kind of actually, now that I think about it, just because we talked about Barristan earlier, Barristan keeps three that he trains especially, right? Yeah, he does. Three to be nice. People, I think, just have the capacity to be a mentor to only three people. Except for Donald Noy, who's going to die. <laughs> Clytus brings them some old wine, and Ha brings black bread while they wait to ascend. Mm, I wonder if it's like Outback Steakhouse bread. Oh. That shit's good. <laughs> I mean, it <laughs> might be their last meal, so it might as well make it good, you know? You don't want people like... Yeah. People... Bring them a blooming onion. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> that would be amazing. Uh, mm. Have you ever watched videos on how those are made? No, but now I will tonight and make one. I have so many onions. No, they have like a... I mean, you can do it by hand, but they have a fucking apparatus for turning it into a bloom. Wow. You gotta watch it. You gotta see it. So Satin asks if Mance Raider has come for them, and John's like, yes, well, we can hope so. And he starts to think that there are worse things in the night and that you can't fight the dead. When the dead walk, walls and stakes and sword mean nothing. You cannot fight the dead, Jon Snow. No man knows that half so well as me. Mance Raider. Love that quote. I like that right after it. It says that just thinking of it made the wind seem a little colder. And I think there's two things going on here. One of them is, uh, yes, that's terrifying because the zombie army of ice does literally make the the wind colder and is terrifying. But it also maybe is colder because then he's like thinking, oh, Mance and I were like kind of bros. Now I'm sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's he's obviously in dire terms, and I mean, think about when Corin and Mance had to go against each other. John is kind of feeling that familial feeling right now, that bond. I mean, he was one of them for a while. Mm-hmm. And this line also reminds me of two other characters that kind of get surrounded by death imagery: Catelyn Stark and Quentin Martell. Hmm. It reminds me of Catelyn Six in A Clash of Kings when she tells Brienne to fight the living, not the dead. And, of course, it reminds you of men's lives have meaning, not their deaths. Mm. See, it's funny because I wasn't thinking this until you brought up the thing about Cersei and Robert saying, what could Lyanna's ghost do that she hasn't to us anymore? And it, and it kind of goes together with these quotes of, like, they're still fighting their dead. Like, Robert has spent so many years fighting his dead instead of living. It's like, feelings... In memory, his ghost. Yeah, he's been wrestling with his along ghosts. with you know how there's literally going to be zombies. So a lot of a lot of things going on in this story, y'all. <sighs> they silently crowd into the winch when it arrives, and then up they go. The cold is horrid as they get out, as the cold always is. Fire burns along the wall in iron baskets on poles, quarrels, arrows, spears, and scorpion bolts, which are all lined up on the wall. There's also rocks that are piled high 
along with barrels of pitch and oil. Those are stacked. And even though there are no men, at least like if Bowen left it stocked. Then Donald Noy hears noise in the wind and asks, what is it? And John's like, oh, that's a mammoth. It's going to be sick, bro. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty exciting. So, like, I-, I know we find tons of these animals so interesting in A Song of Ice and Fire. We talk a lot about, like, horses and zorses, but mammoths have been around forever. The children of the forest originally fought the first men mounted on them. And later on in this chapter, we, we learn the mammoths still to this day are big enough for the giants to ride into battle, not just little wood nymphs. Yep. John knows that it's mants, though, and not the others because fire moves in the darkness toward them flickering on and off beyond the wall and then Donald Noy commands the burning pitch and oil to be thrown from the trebuchets lit up the light then as it hits and soaring through the air lets John see a dozen mammoths this is gonna be great but the second round of oil lets him know that there aren't just 12 there are hundreds huge I love this passage And now the wildlings answered, not with one horn, but with a dozen, and with drums and pipes as well. We are come, they seemed to say. We are come to break your wall, to take your lands and steal your daughters. The wind howled, the trebuchets creaked and thumped, the barrels flew. I thought it was just like so rhythmic and nice. I don't know, it was a a good passage. It felt foreboding. It really got us with these stakes of what we're we're standing against because this isn't the first night of battle. This is that was nothing compared to this. It's continuing. Uh and interestingly enough about the mammoths, did you know the Night's Watch feasted Alisan on huh. Mammoth? Yeah. Like, and that was one of the weird details back then. I was like, oh, so there were probably way more mammoths around. I mean maybe, or they were just willing to like Range. Range and go out there and get it because there were more of them. And, like, brave the other side of the wall to do it. I also thought it was cute that when Viserys 1 was dying and telling Jahera and Jahari's stories on his deathbed, he told them about how Jahari's 1 and Alisan fought giants, mammoths, and wildlings beyond the wall. It's interesting. It's cute. It's totally a lie. (laughs) Yeah, after we've seen what happened with Alisan. Yeah, we're like, that's cute. You like your grandfather. You literally have a story now where it says that you couldn't go beyond the wall. It is cute. It's uh, the imagery here is fun though because it gives you a taste of what it's going to be like when you know the ice zombies come and they aren't making noise. Yeah, the wall is not something that can be taken by conventional methods, but if the gate is taken, then they are toast. So they got to hold this gate. The outer. The outer door was old oak, nine inches thick, and studded with iron, not easy to break through. But Mance has mammoths, he reminded himself. And giants as well. So there's that oak and iron we talked about last week, uh, and with Styles earlier. And of course, okay, now that you read this, I was thinking you were when we when you said they must hold the gate, they must hold the door. What if the door Oh. In the Winds of Winter, the brand chapter is Oak and Iron. Oh. Especially with the Hodor as Dunk's descendant. Fuck. You're welcome. I just ripped my heart out. Yeah, my heart hurts too. That's why I said it, because I want someone else to share my Great, pain. Great, thanks. 
I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) So Donald Noy commands them to light up a row of oil and warm them up, quote unquote. When the last is gone, Gren kicks the last barrel of pitch off the ledge and it's met by many screams below. But drums and pipes and trebuchets all keep to the rhythm, and Septon Celador begins to sing a song that you might find familiar from a certain chapter in the Blackwater. And it is, of course, the uh, Song of Mercy, the Mother's Song. The gentle mother, font of mercy, save our sons from war, we pray. Stay the swords and stay the arrows, let them know. But it trails off because Noi interrupts him and is like, bugger off, where the hell are the archers? (laughs) What are you doing here, Septon Celador? <laughs> I'm honestly really wondering that. After everything we've read about Septon Celador, I'm like, just drink more wine and go to bed. Yeah. Like, why are you here? Not good for morale. He isn't. He's really not. <sighs> Anyways. Molly says it's too dark to aim, and Noi tells him to lose some arrows. You'll just find someone eventually. And he takes two spears and two bows to help hold a door. And tells John, Uh, the wall is his. For a moment, John thought he had misheard. It had sounded if Noy was leaving him in command. My lord. Lord, I'm a blacksmith. I said, the wall is yours. There are older men, John wanted to say. Better men. I'm still as green as summer grass. I'm wounded and I stand of desertion. His mouth had gone bone dry. I, he managed. This is that same denial and pain he's dealt with since childhood from being a bastard, but now it's amplified times ten in the moment of battle, right? Like, there are better men, there are older men, I'm green, I'm wounded, I'm a deserter, I'm a bastard. It's a tale of sometimes how doing the right thing doesn't get you ahead, Mm. right? John has done the right thing, he's done what's been asked of him. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily always get him ahead socially or politically, just like Ned, because that didn't get him ahead Yay! either. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, this comes back, you know, John's reluctance and, and denial and eventually stepping up to the plate later on this chapter. But this entire exchange with Donald Noy, I'm going to come back to later this episode. The battle passes like a dream state for John. And I actually find the language here a little interesting because it says afterward it would seem to John as if he'd dreamt that night. And it's a kind of, I don't know if it's a clumsy switch or if it's something George just did for the sake of poetry because George writes that afterward John would feel like it was all a dream or whatever, you know, which slips into a little bit of that omniscient narrator voice. And we don't usually see into the future of the story in that way. You know, it usually comes through the context of what dreams or prophecies, etc. Not like this, where it's presented as a memory right now. And I think this is just top of mind for me because we were talking about his dark materials before our other read-through series. And that is written with a third-person omniscient narrator where they might be like, later on, this character would look back on this moment thinking fondly of it or whatever. Or they would learn this later to whatever. Whereas obviously, A Song of Ice and Fire is written in that very close third perspective where characters don't really know what's going to happen later on unless it's through like prophecy or whatever. It's just weird language. Yeah, we're bereft of a lot of that foreknowledge or hindsight that comes along sometimes when you have that third-person narrator. 
Rocks and arrows are flying through the air. Drunk Celador is praying to the gods so loudly they almost chuck him off the ledge. And the wind blows harder and harder. We should have twenty trebuchets, not two. And they should be mounted on sledges and turntables so we can move them. It was a futile thought. He might as well wish for another thousand men and maybe a dragon or three. (laughs) 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 So the next time John does this battle, it'll hopefully be with a dragon or three. (laughs) Probably just a, I mean, I assume it'll be three, but like, I do think maybe the show isn't entirely wrong that they're that the others get one because otherwise then they're just too fucking stacked you know yeah that's true three dragons like that was something that made me mad in the long night it's like you guys had two dragons why didn't you use them better i know there were winds of winter but (laughs) it's like now that i think about it it's like you could have organized this better you could have had like the way you set your trap up for the others you could have like went through and burned the field a little better for what for the field I don't know, yeah, yeah. Like, the actual others, you yeah. know? You could have, like, taken out pretty big masses pretty easily, quickly yeah. to help. But, like, then we wouldn't have a TV show. Yeah. So, I understand. But, I, yeah, I do think that, like, they won't have the full the drama. three. There is going to be, like, another one, just because the stakes yeah. got to be higher. I, I, I think it's going to be Fagon. I don't know if it's going to be the others or Fagon or Euron, but someone is going to take out or get a dragon. Yeah, and I, I don't know. Personally, I think one of them, whoever steals a dragon probably Fagon or something he dies maybe the dragon dies with him and later on i don't know the others get to him and they're like this is cool look at this we can animate this I love you know i really would love for it to be Fagon. yeah at this point because if he does get something and if he gets viserion yeah that would be great because he was no true dragon in it oh man i'm so off course right now but like it, it totally fits yeah. perfectly with that idea of We'll get to this one day, everyone. But yeah, and and, and like, <laughs> then he would be a blue eyes white dragon, just like in Yu Gi Oh, which is obviously a supplementary material to a Song of Ice and well, Fire. And George has said that you know, Seto Kaiba is a great the true character. Conflict is the conflict of the heart, oh. and this would be the heart yes! of the cards. Oh my god! Thanks. I'll be here all day. We cracked the code. Total Noi doesn't return, and neither do any of the other men. And John tries to keep going despite the pain in his leg returning. Mm. And oh, his fever's back too! One more arrow, and I'll rest, he told himself half a hundred times. Just one more. Whenever his quiver was empty, one of the orphaned moles would bring him another. One more quiver, and I'm done. It couldn't be long until the dawn. Wait. One more arrow and I'll rest. Is this Butterfly Season 8 foreshadowing? Is this it? For which part? One more arrow and I'll rest. To the heart? Tie that. Yeah, to the heart. Tie that with a... We will fight a battle and then we'll rest. Alive or dead, we'll rest. Yeah, I do think that. I I was thinking, like, this must mean something. This means something. A lot of the stuff that, like, I'm now seeing that I go, oh, this means something. I'm like, oh, it endgame. I wanna be game. Morning comes and they almost don't realize it. But with the morning and the already dead come more fucking wildlings. Ooh. It's like all the wildlings in the universe, literally. 
uh, raiders, giants, wargs, skin changers, mountain men, salt sea sailors, ice river cannibals, cave dwellers with dyed faces, dog chariots from the frozen shore, and hornfoot men with soles of their feet like boiled leather. He realizes the Magnar had been nothing but a feint to catch them unaware, and that this, this is the real battle. Yeah, well, this is one of the real battles for sure, and it really makes you once more admire what Mance has done, bringing all these people together. And I imagine that we're going to maybe, again, see a similar scene with the others, but worse. Like, you're going to see, oh, look at all these different kinds of people all brought together, but they're whites. And, like, the others aren't going to need to faint, and they're not going to need trickery, they're just going to keep going. As the humans yeah. become more tired. And more tired and more tired. <sighs> you know, reading this and reading this battle and then multiplying it in my head times ten, I'm like, oh shit, yeah. it's going to be crazy. That's going to be nuts. Yeah, they're going to like obviously lose a couple battles. They barely make it out of this one. <sighs> With You know, there's giants riding mammoths into the battle and the rest of the wildlings lurch forward. They got spears and clubs and swords and dog chariots. Is this mm-hmm. Balto and, of course, a battering ram? And then Satin wails that we can't defeat this many. This is the reason I was drinking wine. I have to get my lord's oh, face okay. The wall will stop them, John heard himself say. He turned and said it again, louder. The wall will stop them. The wall defends itself. Hollow words, but he needed to say them almost as much as his brothers needed to hear them. Mance wants to unman us with his numbers. Does he think we're stupid? He was shouting now, his leg forgotten, and every man was listening. The chariots, the horsemen, all those fools on foot. What are they going to do to us up here? Any of you ever seen a mammoth climb a wall? He laughed, and Pip and Owen and half a dozen more laughed with him. They're nothing. They're less use than our straw brothers here. They can't reach us. They can't hurt us. And they don't frighten us, do they? No! Gren shouted. They're down there and we're up here, John said. And so long as we hold the gate, they cannot pass. They cannot pass. They were all shouting then roaring his own words back at him, waving swords and logbows in the air as their cheeks flushed red. John saw Keg standing there with a warhorn slung beneath his arm. Brother, he told him, sound for battle. Yeah, <laughs> what a good speech. Oh. <sighs> this is the big payoff for the Lord's voice that we talked about a couple chapters ago, right? Uh, John uses his Lord's voice here which obviously frames him for commanding later and for being in command of the wall now and maybe even later as king in the north, but it's much like Tyrion at the Blackwater using his lord's voice suddenly for his speech or even Jon's mother as the Knight of the Laughing Tree, which is far earlier in this book in Brand 2, A Storm of Swords. It's canon, and it reminds me of a couple different quotes. Eddard Seven. John Aaron had told them that a commander needs a good battlefield voice, and Robert had proved the truth of that on the trident. He used that voice now. And of course, Bran II, A Storm of Swords. When his fallen foes sought to ransom horse and armor, the Knight of the Laughing Tree spoke in a booming voice through his helm, saying, Teach your squire's honor! That shall be ransom enough! Yes, and... 
it is interesting that you tie it to Tyrion at the Blackwater too, because they're they're fighting against Stannis, who is their devil. But here, Stannis will end up being their savior. Yeah, it's reverse Blackwater, bitches. I will say that, like, it's funny because I feel like Tyrion's speech is a little more eloquent. I mean, Tyrion's really yeah. into words and shit. I like that, like, John's thing works. It's really, it does get you really amped when all he's saying is, like, he's just insulting the other side. He's just being like, yeah. they're dumb. We're not. But, like, it works. <laughs> like, this is what the teenage boys want right now. This is what they fucking need. They do, though. Yeah, they do. no, it, like, works. It's cute. It does. It's so cute. It's not awful. I mean, and it's cute. It it's a great step up to see him transform into this role. This is the big moment where, you know, John has finally, it, it's like what I expect from Sansa's arc eventually, you know, is uh, her accomplishing becoming some sort of political leader. And same with John. He's a leader, even politically, but here he's a commander. Yeah. He's commanding them, he's leading them, and they respect him. He's earned their respect. And they want to keep fighting because of him. It's awesome. Yeah, and like with that respect and that renewed energy, that's what allows like John to command the wall. He's not only giving the speech, he's telling the archers to wait for his call. And then apparently he laughs like a madman or a drunk and his men are laughing with him. He continues giving orders to the men and watches the wildlings discipline begin to falter as he thought it would as they dash forward to shoot and then they retreat quickly. He waits for them to be close enough and then he commands uh, the other people of the Night's Watch to notch and loose repeatedly and to shoot the trebuchets and the scorpions. And then he commands the men with fire arrows to light them and burn the ram. So we have this quote, they might be dregs of the order, but they were men of the Night's Watch, or near enough has made no matter. That's why they shall not pass. John has never been allowed to have any identity, and he finds his identity while in a military order that's not allowed to have an identity. Wrap that around right there a couple times in a row. Say that ten times fast. Yeah. A mammoth runs berserked into the gate, and John commands Gren and Pip to light him up. Boo. Sun shouts, <sighs> got him! And suddenly, they all begin to break. The mammoths flee, smashing people in terror. So it's kind of risky, apparently, bringing mammoths into battle. Giants and wildlings scramble out of the way. The center column collapses, and horsemen fall back. The chariots rumble off. When they break, they break hard, Jon Snow thought as he watched them reel away. The drums had all gone silent. How do you like that music, Mons? How do you like the taste of the Dornishman's wife? You know, that's a weird part of the passage to me. Mm -hmm. I, I've been trying to figure that out. We did Same, that, and there's nothing. We did that analysis of the Dornishman's wife, and I, I don't know. I don't know if I get it. I, I don't get that part. It, I, I get it. I think also he's, you know, drunk on battle, but how do you like the taste of the Dornishman's wife? Like, how is that move, that maneuver, that throwing things i don't know well okay isn't it's kind of like a surprise slash backstabby move right because the guy's like i finally got to taste the dorishman's wife after battling for, for it. i guess so it just doesn't make sense it's a he, he's just like throwing it back at him it, it's like his speech you know he's like saying hilarious like hilarious shit and he's just like take that yeah. take that motherfucker you thought you could climb this wall but you can't and that's what john's doing right now that's it's in line. 
Yeah. Yep. Checks out. So after he checks that the men aren't wounded, everybody cheers and Zay, the woman from Molestown, grabs Owen and kisses him and tries to kiss John, but he pushes her away and he's like, no, I am done with kissing. So Zay has a very short shelf life. She appears only in this chapter and the next chapter, well, she disappears. She's mentioned in the next chapter, and she never returns to the plot. So goodbye, Zay. We hardly knew ye. That's how I feel about Lady Meliana, who is no true lady at all. John gets weary and gives grand command of the wall, and Pip's like, him? And escorts him to the cage, and John needs to check the gate before he can rest. And I do think it's telling here that John's weariness comes in the form of his leg. And he suddenly needs to rest. Because we've discussed before how in this battle, John's leg serves a similar function to how Ned's leg injury did in his chapters back when we were going through them. And for John's leg to begin hurting dearly again as Zay tries to kiss John and John's like, no, I'm done with kissing. He's done with kissing, of course, because he's mourning Egret. And so for his leg to hurt again is in response to that kissing. And that means it's again about Egret, that pain... His leg starts hurting again. It's a reminder of her because she's the one who gave him that wound. It's like if you heard a song on the radio about your ex. I get it. Maester Eamon brings the spare key to the gate and Clytus brings a lantern. Eamon tells John to see him after this to tend to his wound and they begin to walk. They travel the tunnel, opening the gates until suddenly they see light coming in the corridor from the very last set of gates. That's a bad sign, obviously. That means <laughs> that gate's been broken, and they see blood on the ground as well. It's a very, like, murder scene. Like, oh, there, we found the dripping blood. Oh, the light's pouring through. Oh, no. What are we going to find? The last 20 feet of the tunnel was where they'd fought and died. The outer door studded oak had been hacked and broken and finally torn off its hinges, and one of the giants had crawled in through the splinters. The lantern bathed the grisly scene in a sullen, reddish light. Pip turned aside to wretch, and John found himself envying Maester Aemon his blindness. So the gate was ripped apart by a giant. They find out it was one giant, and that Donald Noy's sword was plunged into the giant's neck. That was his last move before death. Rip Donald Noy, and in uh, you know sadness of his 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 death, his rest. It reminds me of the Lord's voice, like we've been talking about, and this passage from John seven we read. It does not matter how brave or brilliant a man is, if his commands cannot be heard. Lord Eddard told his son, so Rob and he used to climb the towers of Winterfell to shout at each other across the yard. Donald Noy could have drowned out both of them. The moles all went in terror of him, and rightfully so, since he was always threatening to rip their heads off. <laughs> Donald Noy was one of the many men John looked up to who mentored him, who taught him the difference between his position at the wall and the other boys that arrived. And Donald Noy did his duty. He died defending the watch till the bitter end. I'm going to throw this out there. Being one of John's dads is basically being a defense of the dark arts teacher. It is a cursed position. Think about that so much. Yeah, it's a cursed position for sure. And any of these people's mentors, really. And there's a lot uh -huh. of resonance too, because Stannis is on his way to save the North, right? He's on his way to save the day. And Donald dies without ever getting to see Stannis blaze in with his golden banners streaming, a righteous and just man doing the right thing. He never gets to be holding, you know, the man that he watched grow up and the man that he also Aww. attended. Yeah, I know, sad. I'm like, that's a bummer. Your poor emo son. 
Yep. Your poor emo son who you think will break before he bends. True. <laughs> Big mood. And then the giant that actually broke through is Mag, the king of the giants. Mm. And John remembers mm. the song I'm the Last of the Giants. So this is a lot of the, that hashtag both sides. Uh, but actually, though, because... Yes, the wildlings coming across the wall would probably be a threat to a lot of the people in the north, but they're not coming like necessarily to piv- pillage, for, per se. They're coming because they were fighting for their lives, as were the giants. Absolutely. I, I think that's super important to remember here. Like They're not just attacking for the fun of it. And more than that, the others are coming, and soon John's going to have to fight them again, and everyone in the north is going to have to fight them. I mean... <sighs> I'm glad that the way things go, they do get accepted into the North, at least a little. You know, like, at least they get to keep some of their lives. But this is what people rise up for. You know, it's life or death. If you're a, a country that has no chance no against choice. another country, no chance and no choice. And they didn't. The Wildlings had no chance and no choice. John knows it. He tells them as much. He tells Egret, you know, you guys are going to die, Egret. You're not disciplined enough. I mean, the Night's Watch is holding up and they have nothing right now. They're literally at the dregs of their men, and they are somehow holding their own against the wildlings. Yeah. That has to do with the wall, too, obviously, but still. Still. And after seeing all of this death, John needs Aaron's son, because it turns out death is pretty suffocating. and so Probably stinky. Yeah. It's, it's a lot down there. So he moves himself <laughs> past the obstacle of the dead mammoth. I'm sure that's that was great for him, too. He looks at more of the dead and sees where the wall was melted and the fallen sheets of ice. He returns to the gate, telling them that they need to fix it and get the last knight to command it. Stout, uh, you'll remember him, he's like 70 years old, and Eamon's like, you know, Stout's just not with it anymore. I don't think he can really keep the wall. And John's like, well, then you do it, Eamon. You give the order. But he refuses. Yeah, but Eamon refuses to do that. I am a maester chained and sworn. My order serves John. We give counsel, not commands. Someone must. You. You must lead. No. Yes, John. It need not be for long. Only until such time as the garrison returns. Donald chose you and Corrin Halfhand before him. Lord Commander Mormont made you his steward. You are a son of Winterfell, a nephew of Benjamin Stark. It must be you or no one. The wall is yours, John Snow. Lamau <laughs> need not be for long. Except... By the end of the book, nope, sorry, John, this is your job now, until you know. Dies. Yeah, you get, <laughs> there's another mutiny, but whatever. I love that this just comes right back to Tyrion 6 in A Storm of Swords, which is pretty much around this few chapters earlier. And any man who must say I am the king is no true king at all. Uh, while we've criticized that reluctant leader trope here and there, it's different for John, who very much so was raised by Ned, and of course... The wall is a different beast than just being a lord of a keep or a king of a kingdom. The wall is where you have to separate yourself from your wants and your desires to protect the realm against ice zombies. It's a little different. And we'll see more of it when Stannis arrives. But it also reminds me of that moment we hear Ned speak briefly but bitterly about having to think not of yourself but of the realm and of people. That thought brought a bitter twist to Ned's mouth. Brandon. 
Yes, Brandon would know what to do. He always did. It was all meant for Brandon. You, Winterfell, everything. He was born to be a king's hand and a father to queens. I never asked for this cup to pass to me. Um, that's, I feel like that's a lot of what John goes through. That's from Cat 2 in A Game of Thrones. And I feel like John doesn't very often slip into that darkness, but Stannis does kind of enable that as we see, you know, those, those brief fleeting thoughts of, I could have Winterfell, I could be this, you know, I'm Sir Aemon the Dragon Knight. All of that pain and all those years of being rejected just come rushing to the front. And of all the men that could lead the watch and lead everyone in the long night against the dawn, the battle for the dawn, John is a the righteous man to do so, as we learn. He unites people. He brings wildlings into the kingdom eventually. It's a good role for him. He's been mentored by a lot of people who have a lot of integrity in our good leaders. And he's seen what bad leaders look like, and we're going to see them again in a little bit. But first, we have a lightning round. Arya 12. Nymeria pulls a body from the water. Rise. Rise and eat and run with us. Tyrion 9. Tyrion's preliminary trial for murder, you know, at the really uneventful wedding, doesn't go very hot. But at the end of the day, he finds a champion. Hmm. Jamie 8. Jamie gets back to business, perusing the white book of those who came before him. Sansa 6. Littlefinger teaches Sansa new lessons, and Sansa meets her Aunt Liza. In John 9. The Night's Watch stands tall against Mance Raider and his turtle. And the turtle! <laughs> so, with all of the Donald Noy chatter, this kind of reminds me of the Baratheons, uh, Robert's Warhammer, right? The axes just make me think of Robert and his axe. And also the Battle of the Bells, actually, and the constant tolling of the bells that John Con hears. It's fitting that that <laughs> sound ringing here is an axe, and it's kind of like a mournful sound for Donald Noy. Right, for his smithing abilities. Oh, it is. Damn. And then John doesn't remember the last time he slept. He can hear, yeah, that thunk of axe on wood, even in the King's Tower and worse in the warming shed. Now that we're being reminded of other things, I don't think it happens in this chapter. I don't remember if it's in Sansa 6 or not when she meets Liza and how Sansa couldn't sleep. Yeah, But she for couldn't. a different reason, because... Uh, Sex. Yeah, Liza Liza's fucks. loud in bed. Yeah, she Liza does. Mm -hmm. Good for her. Good for her. I love that when George introduces Liza, he's like, she's puffy and she's got caked makeup on. She's kind of bloated and she's wearing like a hoe dress. And I'm like, same. Yeah. Big Go mood. <laughs> I can Daddy understand girl. this. That's me at Dragon Con, by the way. Like when sweat's happening, it's like Saturday night. You've been out with the same makeup for four hours. You know that shit's not on. Hotlanta. So, John is lying restless when Owen comes to wake him, alerting him Dawn has come, and Owen tells him he dreamt of the king coming with great golden banners. John made himself smile. That would be a welcome sight to see, Owen. Ignoring the twinge of pain in his leg, he swept a black fur cloak about his shoulders, gathered up his crutch, and went out onto the wall to face another day. Such a weird thought, seeing those golden banners in the north. We haven't seen those since the very beginning of the book in the north, right? You don't see them often anymore, now that Robert's dead. 
For every man that he could see, John knew there was a score unseen in the wood. The brush gave them some shelter from the elements and hid them from the eyes of the hated crows. Is this a reference to the Scottish play? I think it is. Like, I got I got similar vibes. Yeah. And I thought it, it was going to be, like, a little more explicit, but I got the same, same vibe. Yeah, it reminds me of the Scottish play, because M.B., is told he will be defeated when Burnham Wood comes to Dunsinane, and later the soldiers cut branches to hide themselves, so it looks like the wood is moving. Just reminded me of that. Yes, so everyone, Chloe's talking about Macbeth, and I am out ah! here cursing myself, because ah! I don't care. Ah! And yeah, no, I got the same vibe, and I think that's something that George really likes. And it comes up again in a different way. It, it, it's a similar reference in one of Asha's chapters later on when Stannis's men take her and they're using the forest yeah and the brush and using that as camouflage and it's also I think George's reference to that as well in the way that it's it's laid out it's his response to it in the way that you know Tolkien responded to the same exact reference and for him he decided to use the Ents Mm -hmm. and Shakespeare you know people are into that and I'm into that. George has it with the weirwood trees as well, obviously, as we know. But yeah, interestingly enough, the way that sentence is written, for every man that he could see, John knew there was a score unseen in the wood. And giving that that personification, it reminds me of the Corinthians 418 a little bit. For our light and our momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal glory that is far beyond comparison. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I wonder also, it kind of that right there, that Corinthians 4.18 reminds me of that line in season eight that Daenerys says, it's hard to see something that's never been before, hmm. especially with that eternal glory idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I think it could be used about Battle for the Dawn and also for the throne, I suppose. But it just reminded me a little bit of that. Just thoughts. Just thoughts. Interesting. Interesting. The wildlings begin to wake also, and they send forth their archers. Pip has taken to announcing, here come our breakfast arrows every morning. (laughs) Yeah, he's also been naming the scarecrows, and John's like, Pip, no. And finally they're all like, all right, Pip, fine. So he's naming them after their dead friends. Apparently it's good for morale. I really don't understand how, but it John's like, this seemed really weird, but it made everyone <laughs> feel better. And he's like, okay. So there's a mirish eye. It's like a telescope, basically, that sits on the wall. And Eamon used to use it for stars, but now it's been helpful for the battle. John watches the wildlings. He's spying Mance at his tent with Dalla. Pregnant as can be, and Val is milking a goat. And I thought that was cool. You only hear about the Mirish Eye in a couple other places. Uh, Victorian speaks about it, and so does Maester Lewin. So obviously the mm-hmm. Citadel likely utilizes them. Obviously, obviously, that's an easy one. Of course they do. They're freaking scholars. They're from Oxford. I mean, Old Town. Uh, wrong podcast. So I don't know. It also reminds me that he's looking straight at the wildlings. Like, you never should have loved them. You never should have left them. Mm, yeah and looking at them be cute and shit yeah <sighs> yep he wheels it to find he wheels the mirish eye to find a turtle as well it's got a rounded top and eight huge wheels and it has a lot of different hides placed on it including a mammoth that they skinned the night before on its wooden frame 
And he tells the men, the turtle is going to come today. Have we filled the barrels? They did, and they they frozen the barrels to solid ice for, like, attack reasons. Right. Grand smart. It is smart. It, it, you got to use what resources you can. And the one thing they do have is something that can turn to water and then turn back to ice. Snow. Snow, Ned. Oh. So Gren didn't really get sleep. John commands him to get rest while he can. And he returns to the mirish eye and he scans the camp. He watches arrows whiz past sporadically. He sees no sign of Mance, but he does find Tormund, his sons, and Veramir's six skins with the shadow cat at his feet. The chains of the winch creak, and that signals Hob, bringing them breakfast, but breakfast really isn't comforting John. They're out of oil, they're out of pitch, and soon arrows are going to be scarce as well. The night before last, a raven delivered news of Bowen Marsh chasing wildlings from the Shadow Tower, courtesy of Dennis Malister. But the triumph was cut short. Because while they beat the wildlings, they also lost a hundred brothers in the process. Including Sir Andrew of Tarth and Sir Adel Winch. And along with all that, the old pomegranate, aka Bowen, was grievously injured. Darn, I'm so sad. <laughs> yeah. John sends Zay to go rouse what's left of Molestown, but Zay does not return. Molly goes after her, he finds the village is abandoned, and no Zay in sight, and John knows. She likely fled south on the King's Road like everyone else, and he wishes that they could all do the same. He makes himself eat, even if he has no appetite, because it could be their last meal. But suddenly, eating's interrupted. Horse shouts, It's coming! We know what that is. It's the turtle. Yes. And I just want to address this for everyone, because maybe you're just like, why did George choose a turtle? Why is there all this hubbub about a turtle? And I would like to explain... That George is very much into turtles. Turtles are, I guess, for him, what zorses and horses are for me. <laughs> Except I never had a pet horse because I didn't have that much money. Yeah. Whereas uh, George, he had turtles. And turtles, I guess, are not expensive. I don't know. They were the only pets that he was allowed to have as a child. And he used to actually create all of these stories of intrigue around them. And he was like, the turtles would live in castles and then they'd have battles and fight against each other. He wouldn't like really like, I guess, I assume he's never actually gone into detail about this, but I assume he didn't really make the turtles fight each other or smash them against each other. But he came up with all of these plots that the turtles would have against one another. And sometimes the turtles would die, you know. I don't know how long-lived some of these turtles are or how well he took care of them. And he would tell himself that they were betrayed by other turtles, if, if I'm recalling this detail correctly. Mm -hmm. And so that is why we have a turtle at the wall. My favorite George turtle is probably Morla. There's another one that I like. It's not Morla, it's a small one. And I like to think of him as the young man of the river. You've talked about him, the old man of the river. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The young man. No, because but he's, he's small. young man, yeah. But it's him. Yes. Is Morla the young man of the river? No, Morla's a little girl. She's beautiful. Yes. Yes. Okay. Different. Cool. Yes. There's great. George has turtles. They're great. We love them. And next month, be sure to check out our September Patreon episode for $5 patrons and up on the turtles of A Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> we've got this turtle. We've got the old man of the river. We're going to talk the a lot about house one. and. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot about House Estermont. And their role in the story as turtles. They actually might play a role. I think 
they're probably going to be on Fagon's side. Yeah, I mean, like, they came up and there was some stuff about them. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if, Sidebar, Ariane in the Stormlands. Yeah. And, you know, they did take Edric Storm. Exactly. So I do do think House Estermont will play a role anyway. Sorry, everyone. Turtles. Satin and Pip remark on how turtly it is not of the turtle, because it doesn't look like a turtle. It's just furry and big. But nonetheless, it's coming, and John is like, go sound the warhorn, wake Gren and the other sleepers. It might come down to each of them fighting the wildlings through the iron bars of the gate at this point. The sheer numbers of the men Mance has will wear the brothers thin, as we keep seeing happen. There will continue to be fresh men, but the brothers keep getting tired as it goes. John is just so tired, but he has to give the orders, trying first to burn the turtle. Scorpions and catapults do not stop it. The hides are not burning. So he pins his hopes on his secret weapon. Again, another sidebar. But my mother says I used to quote an American tale starring Fievel Mouskowitz all the time and shout, release the secret weapon. I think it was Fievel who says this all the time as a child. I don't remember this, but it sounds, it checks out. I enjoy that you use the term starring. Like, the animated character is actually real and he stars in it. Like, you know it's Philip Glass and Thomas Decker who vote. Never mind. I, he, you're not going to come to Roger terms Rabbit. this. It Roger was Rabbit. Five stars Old Mouse Sorry, it was Five Old Mouse You know he's not real, right? I don't know that, Chloe. And so, neither do you. They send down the barrels slash boulders that are made of frozen ice and pebbles, which is why John needed Gren to go to bed. So that he could wake up and be strong and all these. Yeah, and then John has this idea, right? Along with the already the good idea of the barrels. And he does some like that ice curling shit. You know, that that sport that I don't quite yeah, understand. Yeah. I think Hamfast 42 plays curling, if I'm not mistaken. He started getting into it a little. And so they melt the ice in front of the barrels a bit using the torches. So that it goes like, it rolls easier and goes faster. Mm. And John keeps thinking he's like damn it we should have had Bowen build hoardings which is a temporary like shelf-like construction that goes a little bit over the walls or whatever to give defenders more field of vision during a siege but you know it's too late he's like there's all these things we should have done oh well (laughs) horse if you'll remember horse saves john yep harith from falling over the wall when his leg twitches and again john's like damn it we should have built hoardings yeah the chateau come tell at Carcassonne and the keep at Rowan Castle, both in France, have reconstructed wooden hoardings. And the uh, the Caerphilly Castle in Wales, I think, also has them. They're kind of in the same category as like those add-ons like the Mertrier or the Murder Hole or like Merlin's even, if you really want to get technical. It's similar to Merlin's, I guess, to keep that guard up. I hit my head on like coming out of a murder hole the other day. By that, I mean last week. I didn't know it was a murder hole, but I was coming out, hit my head once, tried to duck down lower, wasn't low enough, hit my head a second time. She's coming out. So the first barrel makes a crack in the turtle. After all four of the barrels fall, the wildlings leave it, and they still have eight barrels left to throw at the turtles. So they did good. They only uh, used four out of 12. Not bad. Not bad. Not bad. This time, John gives Pip the wall, and this time, Gren says him? It's fun fun stuff all around here in A Song of Ice and Fire. John goes to sleep in the King's Tower for a bit before the next day's battle when someone comes to wake him, and oh, it's a... 
At first, he's like, I don't know this person, and thinks, oh, shit, the wildlings got in. But turns out, no, it's a Man of the Night's Watch. And turns out, yay, Alistair Thorne is here, but he's looking very clean, and not like he's been in battles for days, just saying. Interestingly enough, John is dreaming of this. He doesn't realize it, but he's dreaming, and he hears muffled screams and shouts and talking, and then he hears the horn sound once for rangers. And then he wakes up. <sighs> you're right. You're right. I, I, I like missed that. And then Alistair shows up. And he's like, "Here's the turn cloak now, my lord, Ned Stark's bastard of Winterfell." <laughs> and then Alistair's like telling everyone he likes to be called Lord Snow, and John's like, "No, I don't." Like you that's gave not me that day. Yeah. He's like, "I'm not gonna let you gaslight me in front of all these randos." Also, that's bullshit. Like John literally worked so hard to keep up the morale that his emo ass could never keep that up, but he did, and he kept the place like jiving and going. And here's Alistair Thorne. He's just like, "I'm here to be annoying." What up? He's acting <sighs> like he saved the day. It's like, no, Alistair, you did not. You missed saving the day. We already had the worst of it. Well, not true, but John pieces together though that I guess these are East Watchmen. And then Alistair, like, spins this whole tale where John abandoned the Night's Watch for the Wildlings. And Eamon's like, we, me and Donald know we already talked to him about this, and we're pretty satisfied with John's explanations. Probably because he's been murdering Wildlings all night. But what do I know? I don't know. Who knows? Who knows what John's been doing this whole time, you know? But Alistair's not satisfied with this. And mm -mm. there's this random jowly man that showed up, and he's super annoying, and... Oh, look, it's Jano Slint. Everyone Please clap. Please clap. Just kidding, Please don't. Clap. Don't do that. <laughs> He's like super insistent that John needs to call him my lord. And so John's like, yes, my lord. Yeah, and it comes back a little to what you're saying about any man like who must say that I am king is no true king. And there's so much, I think, to unpack here. And I'm going to like just go into it because Jano Slint keeps correcting John. And telling him that, no, you gotta call me a lord. But yeah. the way that he says it every time is telling John explicitly to address him as my lord. Like the M apostrophe L-O-R-D. And like, you know, the show even like made a whole deal of talking about the difference between my lord and my lord. And on the other hand, you have Alistair over here painting John as being the one who is upjumped, who wants to be called lord. When actually, no. It's Janos. Janos is the one who's coveting the title because he covets like that station that John is like so close to by birth but doesn't quite have. And like it's shown in this exchange through John's response, which is simply written as, yes, my lord. And that small difference in spelling, it like reveals so much about Janos Lynn's insecurities and like the hypocrisy and irony of all these dynamics, especially because, you know, John's parents are Rhaegar and Lyanna. But, you know, just as Donald Noy told John, like, John grew up with a lot of the comforts and that those trappings of nobility, even if he didn't feel like he did. And all of these status symbols and, like, the nobility that he got to be close to, these are things that Janos Slint really wanted. And that comes through in their speech and the way that they say these words and the writing just explicitly juxtaposes those in the scene. And then speaking of Donald Noy again... You know, coming back to that moment when Donald leaves John with the wall, Janos is again out here claiming he's like, I'm in command of the wall now. I having just fucking shown up and never really done anything for it before. And again, he's demanding to be called my lord. 
And this is in contrast to Don Onoy, because the wall was his at the beginning of this last chapter. And then he gives it to John, and John accidentally calls Noy, uh, my lord. And Noy balks at that. He's like, uh, refusing the title, and then leaves with a reminder that, no, I'm not a lord, I'm a fucking blacksmith, get it right. And then he goes and he dies to defend the wall. And compared to, like, Janos and Alistair, they, like, weren't even there. They come in and they're dressed, like, super nice, and finally they're unbloodied. Like, Noi takes pride in the fact that he was a blacksmith. He takes pride in his work, and he does, like, he does it well, unlike Slint, who just wants the trappings of power, the title of being a lord, but none of the hard work behind it. Yeah, no man who calls himself Lord Commander should be Lord Commander, is what mm. you're saying. Yes, it is, in fact. There was this really humorous little bit uh, where Janos goes, Oh no, Janos Slint does not swallow lies so easily. Do you think my skull was stuffed with cabbage? <laughs> I don't know what your skull is stuffed with, my lord. Oh, savage! <sighs> John's been working on his zingers all night. And, well, funnily enough, like you said earlier... He was annoyed about Pip making jokes, right? But now he's like, all right, fine. It's lifting spirits. I'll make some jokes, he said, making fun of Jano Slint. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he deserves to be made fun of. So John swears he never turned his cloak. But he did break his vows to the woman, but he's like, so did half the watch internally, like, all the time, every night, in Molestown with Zay and her colleagues, but, like Lady Meliana. Yeah, like Lady Meliana and Zay are girls. Uh, but we have a prisoner to witness to John's crimes. Yeah, it's Battle Shirt, and he's looking a lot more like Ragged Shirt uh-uh, without not. his armor on. Mm, I, yeah, he is. Okay, no, he you, is. he's always looked bad, though. That's true. So not until that instant did John recognize Battle Shirt. He is a different man without his armor, he thought. First off, your pun. Ragged shirt? That was it? It was good. It was good. Second, I like that George described Rattleshirt as this like ratty looking man with beady eyes, a knobby chin, shitty stash, especially considering what's to come when he gets traded for Mance. It's so funny to think, like, how could that ever have passed as Mance? But it is interesting that John doesn't recognize him without the shirt, and I think that plays so much into... Things that we're going to see in dance around glamours and how much we associate identity, you know, with the symbols that people carry around them. Again, those trappings of power or whatever. Yeah. Rattleshirt accuses John of killing Corin Halfhand. So things aren't looking great for our protagonist. Uh, John insists Corin told me what to do, whatever was asked of me. Again, does not look good <laughs> at all. It doesn't. <laughs> He needs, like, I don't know, a lawyer, a PR crisis manager. Maybe a new job. Uh, Alistair likens John to the turncloaks that killed Mormont, and then he accuses Benjen of abandoning the watch for Mance Raider. John peeled off his glove and showed them his burned hand. I burned my hand defending Lord Mormont from a white, and my uncle was a man of honor who would never have betrayed his vows. I just can't believe they're out here just, like, slandering Benjamin Stark like this. Like You can't! John's like, I mean, I can believe it, but I'm just like, wow. Wow, way to show your ass, Alistair. But John's just like, how dare you act like I didn't love my other, other, my other dad. But really, it's just very interesting because in the show, you know, after John executed 
these men who mutinied against him, they kind of stopped having him clash with other male characters as much. Mm-hmm. Which I think is kind of interesting because I think that from the start of John's story in Game of Thrones, it's it's very full of conflict with other male characters and between the male characters in general. Like part of it is of course like John being placed in a very male dominated organization like the Night's Watch, but even amongst the free folk, he clashes with Rattleshirt and he thinks often about how much he dislikes the Magnar. And if he was in small council sessions with Danny's council of mostly men, how do you think he'd feel? You know, he's likely gonna feel the same way there. Uh I do I do agree. You're totally right. While they etched out some of the lords being opposed very lightly to John as king, they didn't. They were more concerned with Lady Lannister and her claim and how she's not a real Stark. We're not going to help you in the show. And it kind of surprises me because, as we'll get into it in a little bit, they have some parallels, some major parallels to talk about. Yeah. And then you have Septon Selador, which, like, I don't know. Who are you? Like, right. why are you here? What are you doing? Yeah. What are you doing right now? Like, literally no one asked for your opinion. As he tells them, like, oh, also, John swore vows not to the seven, but went beyond the wall to swear to the old gods and their wildling gods. And I'm like, Septon Selador, are you fucking kidding me right now? Like, who do you think keeps the Night's Watch running? Like, a lot of the Night's Watch comes because, like... There are northern lords, the ones who worship the old gods, and they're the ones who, like, have actually supported the Night's Watch a lot of the time. Like, literally, J.R. Mormont also. You know, now that you pointed out like this, and it's something that I talk about how Tyrion is sandwiched in the next chapter. He's the next chapter after this, but Mm -hmm. the chapter before the next Tyrion chapter is Tyrion's trial. So Mm. he has all these people falsely bringing evidence against him and right here you have the same thing even Septon Zelador is like you know he uh, he worships those wild gods and you have Janos and you have Alistair standing there going yeah lock him up lock him up yes oh yes that's such a perfect parallel between them and well done thanks <laughs> great job Chloe I just thought of it I feel good I'm done the podcast's over bye guys no we got things to say oh, okay go <laughs> And then finally, Maester Aemon is like, all right, enough of this shit. They are gods of the North, Septon. Maester Aemon was courteous, but firm. My lords, when Donald Noy was slain, it was this young man, Jon Snow, who took the wall and held it against all the fury of the North. He has proved himself valiant, loyal, and resourceful. Were it not for him, you would have found Mance Raider sitting here when you arrived, Lord Slint. You are doing him a great wrong. Jon Snow was Lord Mormont's own steward and squire. He was chosen for that duty because the Lord Commander saw much promise in him. As do I. Yes, tell him. Yeah. So Slint has the audacity to respond with. He goes... These promises may turn false. Just what? And then. Of all the people. Of all the people. Yeah, of all the people. Because, like, him, traitor ass bitch, he has the fucking gall to go, like, Ned Stark? He died a traitor. Wow. My father was murdered. John was past caring what they did to him, but he would not suffer any more lies about his father. Slint purpled. Murder! You insolent pup! King Robert was not even cold when Lord Eddard moved against his son. 
He rose to his feet, a shorter man than Mormont, but thick about the chest and arms with a gut to match. A small gold spear tipped with red enamel pinned his cloak at the shoulder. Your father died by the sword, but he was high-born. A king's hand for you a noose will serve. Sir Alisa, take this turncloak to an ice cell. My lord is wise, Sir Alistair seized John by the arm. John yanked away and grabbed the knight by the throat with such ferocity that he lifted him off the floor. He would have throttled him if the East Watchmen had not pulled him off. Thorne staggered back, rubbing the marks John's fingers had left on his neck. You see for yourself, brothers, the boy is a wildling. Any sane person would want to do that to Alistair Thorne. <sighs> anyway... So obviously, A Dance with Dragons wasn't written when this chapter was, but there's some interesting stuff going on here. We've discussed this before during Sansa's chapters, but when George originally wrote the chapter where John executes Janos Slint, he was actually going to have John, like, actually hang Slint, as he initially suggests, until someone in the audience during a reading of this chapter, an earlier reading before it was published, pointed out that this is inconsistent with John's character and upbringing as one of Ned's quote-unquote children. And so you can see here that perhaps it really was meant to be a noose as an insult to Janos's station because Janos is saying a noose will serve for him and swords are for the highborn. But by having the end product as John beheading Janos Lint, you end up with the story doing a couple of interesting things, whether or not they're intended by the author, right? Because there becomes this sense of irony and backhandedness in Janos' beheading, which Janos believes is only reserved for the high born. And of course, as we know, it reinforces John's northern identity and how he was raised by Ned. But it also then, in the context of this passage, shows the kind of uh, honor behind Ned and the North's custom for this beheading, because highborn or, or lowborn, that method of execution is the same. It's always that swinging the sword, and in a morbid sort of way, it's almost a little more egalitarian than using the manner of someone's death to demean them, because Ned basically believes highborn or low, you owe it to them to look in the eye, and if you would take their life, you would be the one to swing the sword yourself and not use a noose. Yeah, and to coincide with that, in Sam 5 in A Storm of Swords, Stannis says he thinks Peter Baelish convinced Robert to keep Janos in his employ, and Robert had been known to say he kept him after he found him guilty of extorting men and making deals for half their salaries in the City Watch, and Robert would say perhaps the next person would be worse, so he wouldn't get rid of him. So yeah, pretty obvious Peter Baelish convinced him on that one, but... I'd like to add that with this whole scene, like you mentioned, Ned, it's reminiscent in Mirror of Jano Slint and his men taking Ned into captivity at Littlefinger's betrayal, right? Locking him in the ice cells at the very last command. In this scene, Alistair is kind of playing that Littlefinger character, egging him on, which really works well with this old pomegranate imagery when you think about Baelish offering Sansa the pomegranate in A Storm of Swords and the old pomegranate offering Janos kind of this, uh, yeah, come on in, you're highborn, you'll fit in great. I also thought it was interesting how we've degraded so far at the watch. Like, right now, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Janos Slint has pretty much taken command, and Alistair Thorne's back, and he's the boss, too. Out of nowhere, they just asserted themselves as the regional presidents of this organization, and things are descending into chaos now. 
Uh, if Stannis and his men weren't about to ride in to save the day, the Night's Watch would likely have so much infighting and not enough men that they would just fall apart. And this chapter is sandwiched by Sansa and Tyrion. Tyrion, who, like I said, is about to go on trial and is thinking about taking the Black, and Sansa, who just escaped King's Landing and is wanted for regicide, you have this great parallel of Sansa and Jon and Tyrion who are wanted for being traitors to the realm and regicide and all this stuff. Hmm, yes. Great way to close. Good job. You're a closer, Chloe. Thanks. You did it. (laughs) Yes, and... This is so weird. I'm going to say something very out of character here, but it makes me really excited. Like, all this stuff makes me so excited for Stannis to come and burn Janos. Yeah. And that, with his words. I I knew you meant. I never think that. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. I'm actually kind of excited to see Stannis. It's cool to see him interact with Jon in this sense, and after everything Jon's just gone through, and, you know, being a righteous man that shows up at the wall. So... Uh, of course, we're keeping it quiet until right this moment, but next week, we'll be doing John 10 in A Storm of Swords. And Eliana, is there something special about John 10 in A Storm of Swords? Yes, there is something super exciting about next week. We're going to have Matt from the podcast Davos Fingers joining us to talk about John, especially to talk about John's encounter and discussion with Mance Raider. We thought that this would be nice, especially with how musical Matt is. Yes, and uh, if you haven't heard it, he has a great little jingle song about John. He actually played it at Ice and FireCon this year in the performance contest. It was so cool to hear it live. Uh, Davos Fingers has some awesome songs that they write and play and just fun filk songs. So I'm very excited to have him on. And of course... Matt is one of the OGs of the A Song of Ice and Fire reread podcast thing, you know, he and the they finished it. Fingers. Yeah, they finished. They finished their whole read through. Someday we will. When we're older. <laughs> sure. <laughs> they are sure, the OGs. Jim. They are. Yeah. We're very excited. You guys don't want to know how much it cost us to get them on. So, yeah, it cost us, I don't know. Maybe a few fingers. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening, you guys. If you want to check us out online, you can check our social media. We're on Twitter, at Girls Gone Canon. You can also send us an email if you want to chat about the episode or something's on your mind about ASWAF. Canon gmail.com. Hit it off. Yes, and of course, if you want to keep up with whenever any of our episodes come out, be sure to subscribe to us. You can find us on Google Play on iTunes, on Acast, on Spotify, on Stitcher, and of course on Podbean, where all these are hosted. Someone else said something that we happened to be on the other week. We didn't even know we were on it, so I forgot what it was. Overcast? Maybe? I don't know. We're on it. We're on it all. Just Google us, dude. Just Google it. And as always... Check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. Patrons that are $5 and up are going to get a special episode in August about mentors in A Song of Ice and Fire of some of our favorite characters, mostly the Stark characters we're going to start with. This could be a series. We don't know. We'll find out. So check it out. Patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. And of course, be sure to check out our His Dark Materials read-through podcasts as well. Yes. And as always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I've been another one of your hosts, Eliana. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye.